So it has come to this. <laughs> this last evening that we're going to spend together and reflect a bit on Dhamma. It's been my experience uh, at this time in retreat, when I'm on retreat myself, I think with some poignancy about all of the moments when I could have been cultivating mindfulness. (laughs) 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 When, you know, what we were doing instead, right? We were in the dream world cultivating mindlessness, actually. And then perhaps realizing uh, the preciousness of the time on retreat, I begin to worry about whether I'll regress or lose what I have seen whatever, and whatever meta, uh, measure of metta and equanimity and mindfulness and insight have come as the fruit of the practice. <clears throat> and if you also feel this, Perhaps you have the quite human uh, reaction of wanting to hold on, wanting to hold on to the retreat. And I know usually at the end of retreat, I'm thinking, well, if I just had a couple more days, right, things would be, I could really get somewhere. But this is how it is. Things come and things go. And so we'll be letting go of the silence uh, tomorrow. I wanted to tell you about this um, wonderful man named uh, John Francis. <clears throat> Let's see, he was, he was described in this way. After a massive oil spill polluted San Francisco Bay in 1971, John Francis, a, quote, planet walker, lived car-free and silent for 17 years. He gave up all motorized transportation. For 22 years, he walked everywhere he went, including treks across the entire United States and much of South America, hoping to inspire others to drop out of the petroleum economy. He was the son of a working-class African-American family in Philadelphia. And for 17 years, he communicated through improvised sign language, notes, and his ever-present banjo. Environmental Pilgrim says he took his vow of silence as a gift to his community, quote, because, man, I just argued all the time. And this is from his book. He says, most of my adult life, I have not been listening fully. I only listened long enough to determine whether the speaker's ideas matched my own. If they didn't, I would stop listening. 
and my mind would race ahead to compose an argument against what I believed the speaker's idea or position to be. That was one of the tearful lessons for me because when I realized that I hadn't been listening, it was as if I had locked away half of my life. I just hadn't been living half of my life. Silence is not just not talking. It's a void. It's a place where all things come from. All voices, all creation comes out of this silence. So when you're standing on the edge of silence, you hear things you've never heard before. And you hear things in ways you've never heard them before. And what I would disagree with one time, I might now agree with in another way, with, an, with another understanding. So, if you're in love with the silence, there's a model for you. <laughs> but I don't have any illusion that you're going to undertake that kind of practice. He's a wonderful being, by the way, that you might want to check out. He, was, he has some really wonderful things to say. There's some uh, interviews with him on, uh, from the BBC, actually that are very good. I think they're on YouTube. So we can't hold on to the silence. But we may have some idea that we can practice the way we've been practicing. Be still and quiet and non-reactive and practice mindfulness of mind states in the midst of the boss yelling. Good luck with that. Or someone stealing our parking space when we're late for work. Or the relationship is breaking apart. Or someone that we love is seriously ill. Realizing the value of these states and of mind and heart that we've been cultivating, we may try to hold on to the qualities of mind that may have emerged over these days of sitting and walking and paying intimate attention to the body, uh, the mind, and the heart. In this beautiful place, for seven days, we've been held by more than 35 years of practice here at IMS. And even in the moments when we may have thought we were not practicing, we were held in the practice. Certainly, and I want to bow to you for this, I have felt myself in the stream of your practice, whether it's just walking through the building and encountering you or sitting with you in group or private meetings. And so just by your very presence, your connection to Dhamma has deepened and the signal is no longer low. <laughs> so what we can what we've discovered perhaps and what we can trust is that we can nurture and cultivate and develop 
and bring forth these qualities of mind and heart that we have been talking about and reflecting on and practicing with. We now know that something loving and creative and spacious can emerge from the space that we create in our minds every time we're willing to be um, with a pleasant experience, a joyful experience, without clinging or grasping. And when we've been willing to be with a difficult experience, mindfully, gently, and lovingly, or to allow a thought that may have been previously compelling us to speak or act in ways that we may later regret to arise and pass away in the mind without engagement or expression. That's a big deal. This is not how our minds are usually trained. Our minds are trained in many ways in our culture in the opposite ways. And what we've learned is that some freedom arrives when we can be with these experiences in this non-reactive way. And of course we hope and we um, uh, look forward to these um, the, 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 the practice that's created this space and this joyfulness and this ability to be deeply present that what has been revealed is not lost as we return to our usual lives of work and family and play we wonder whether the seeds that we've planted can survive the harsh weather and conditions of the difficulties of life. Although you should know we've survived the hottest uh, recorded July in the United States. It's true. So we've even physically um, managed to persevere. So this is Audre Lorde poem called Coping. She said, it it has rained for five days running. Oh, if only that were true. (laughs) The world is a round puddle of sunless water where small islands are only beginning to cope. A young boy in my garden is bailing out water from his flower patch. When I ask him why, he tells me young seeds that have not seen sun forget, and drown easily. Certainly, if we deprive our seeds that we plant of sun, they can become overwhelmed by the rain. And these seeds that we're planting in our mind, heart, and body are no different. We know what it's like to be knocked around by the tumult of daily life. We're constantly barraged by uh, bad news, overwork, despair, economic 
difficulties. We go back into a life perhaps where we're working more hours than our bodies can stand, and certainly more than our psyches can stand. And we can sometimes uh, deceive ourselves about the very nature of possibility and the openings for change. We get stuck in despair or cynicism or find ourselves caught up in rigid relationship to our lives, to, to time and task and relationships and the constant uh, grasping of some identity where we think, yep, this is me, this is how I, this is how I react, this is who I am. And this is true for our economic and ecological problems also. We live in a world where collaboration is not so much admired as is competition. Our anxiety around scarcity and the sense of a world on the verge of echo-collapse may disconnect us from our own internal sources of wisdom and compassion and equanimity, that spaciousness of mind and heart that allows us to live with these uh, extremes of life. And so because this can be unbearable, what do we do? can disconnect from our bodies. We disconnect from our environment that Yanai was talking about last night. We disconnect from our emotional worlds and the people around us. We put on armor as we go out. We feel as if we can't function in a world of intimacy. And so the armor of anger and denial and self-neglect and abuse we put on to shield us from depression or disenchantment and discouragement because we think we're afraid that it would overwhelm us if we gave it space. And as you know, these strategies, as you, I hope you've seen, often these strategies emanate from a place of suffering. And of course, what we understand is that our individual suffering gets writ large in our communities and in our countries and in our world, that how we are as individuals very much reflects and influences how the world is. So our society becomes a manifestation of our own internal turmoil. I'm not going to stay there. I promise you. But I think it's worthwhile to understand the environment in which we're operating and the Uh, habits of mind into which uh, a lot of our society 
has been trained so that we understand when we undertake this very difficult practice, this very difficult training ourselves, we understand why. And it's because we human beings have a natural wellspring of wisdom and compassion, of goodwill. And so we seek the transformation, not only for ourselves, but for all beings and for our world. This, this uh, retreat is named Mindfulness, Insight, and Liberation. And I imagine in my mind that some of you came because it was, because it, it drew you, it pulled you. Not only because of the wonderful teachers who you're all used to, but because there is something about that that remembering, that reminding that this is who we are too. That there is this wellspring of wisdom and compassion that we can access. And so we desire freedom and a way that expresses the best that we have to offer as human beings. Our truth, our joy, our complex intelligence, and our kindness. So the intensity of retreat ends tomorrow. And if we've accessed that liberation in our hearts, and we found some tenderness, and some connection. It naturally is a concern of concern of how we bridge that, how we bridge the transition from all that we've seen and all that we know, all the whatever insights have arrived. And certainly in your meetings, you've shared some of those beautiful insights with us. Yes, there have been difficulties. And yet, as you've persevered through the difficulties, insights have come, understandings that were not there before. And so, how do we see that these qualities that you've also been cultivating, as well as the understandings and the insight, do not become dimmed, and indeed, perhaps even can be further developed. And I'd like to talk a little bit about that tonight. This quality of spaciousness and equanimity, which, and those are the two words I use as a kind of umbrella um, for what we've, what we've come to in our practice. Some taste of balance. 
And I mentioned equanimity in the uh, talk on Tuesday night about the Brahma Viharas. Can you remember far, that far back? Uh, but we didn't really cover it very deeply. And I, I want to name this talk Going Home with Equanimity because I really feel that that's the quality that if we continue to be aware of it, the, its presence in our lives through this practice that we do, that this quality of equanimity is the quality that can bridge us from this deep and intense retreat experience into life, that it's a, it's a practice and a quality of mind and heart that will keep you connected to this deep practice that you've done. So what we've been discovering here is the ability to deeply and compassionately connect with our experience. And we've done that in the midst of uh, difficulties and joys and sorrows and uh, perhaps difficult memories have arisen. All kinds of weather systems have come and gone. And we've been able to connect sometimes with our experience without clinging or rejecting and allowing for what is and what arises to be engaged with wisdom without friction or resistance. And so what you've been developing is this quality of equanimity. And as, uh, as I said on Tuesday night, this quality of equanimity is an emanation of uh, metta, loving-kindness, uh, and it underpins with wisdom the quality of heart of loving-kindness that uh, meets um, suffering with compassion and meets joy with uh, appreciative joy. And it's a, it's a deep quality that comes through the practices that we have been developing and aligning with the truth of things as they are. When we have been doing that, we have come to some equanimity. And equanimity is a combination of power and strength and presence. Power and strength and presence that enables our actions to be driven by wisdom and compassion rather than by craving, aversion, and delusion. And when this is so, when this actually comes to be, we find that we're connected, not so much armored, but connected in love with all beings in our universe, with all experiences in our universe, 
sounds pretty high-flown, doesn't it? Sounds kind of highfalutin and maybe not so possible. But really check it out in your experience. (coughs) That when we're not reacting, and when we're able to connect in a way (coughs) that is non-reactively, the state of heart is love. And this connected love is more than the expression of deep emotion or the pull to intimacy. It's a love that can become intimate with grief and stand firmly in the fire of conflict and can witness horror without recoiling. This is from a friend of mine who went to Ground Zero after September 11th, 2001 as a, as a chaplain. And he wrote this piece after uh, the same, the, the, the night that he, after he came back. He said, as we came closer to Ground Zero Ash was everywhere on the ground, like fine white sand. Pieces of paper from office files were strewn about everywhere. Walking through the atrium of the World Financial Center, we saw cafe tables with half-eaten breakfasts, covered in dust, frozen in time, from the morning of September 11th. As we walked, we were walking toward the site from the west and the slight wind was blowing directly east so we saw a crystal clear blue sky just as it had been the day before. The faces of the firemen and medics leaving the site spoke of shock, exhaustion and and disbelief. As we walked into the site, I tried to prepare myself for carnage and horror, for overwhelming terror and chaos. But as I entered ground zero, I experienced instead a feeling of awe, like entering a great cathedral, a grand canyon, or a sacred circle, or burial ground. It was both infinite and intimate. The remaining buildings surrounding the area where the Twin Towers had stood, formed an enormous amphitheater, and mostly what was there was a kind of presence or pure space. I felt my heart break wide open. As I watched in silence, the words that came to me were, oh, this is how it is. This is who I am. This is how the world is. This is the way of life and death. This is the nature of things. Everything that is created comes and goes, comes together and falls apart. Yet everything is infused. All of history seemed to be there. Visions of ancient civilizations rising and falling flashed through my mind 
and I had an intense awareness of the preciousness of human life and the incredible ignorance of people that led to this destruct to these destructive murderous acts. I felt grief for those who had died and for the families who would live on without them. But I also felt a deep sense of hurt for the continuing insanity of the human race. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. But what was missing revealed something else. My mind was stopped or seemed to drop away. And in the seeing, it was as if everything was present as vast open space, light, and even love. It was as if love and hate, life and death, the inner and outer, all experience moved as an infinite space of consciousness. There was a pervasive, seamless, empty, silent, vast, loving light. On top of the hill of rubble and ground zero, amidst all the sadness and loss, it was as if a veil had parted and revealed a luminous, loving presence that had been hidden but was always there. Without saying anything out loud, I turned to Paige, his wife, who had not been, who had been on a recent Dzogchen retreat and asked her what her experience was. Complete stillness and grace, she responded. We had a strong impression that the power of love that was filling this place was partly good intentions, love, prayers, healing, pouring into that place like water of life flowing over the tops of the surrounding buildings into the site from all over the world. He goes on about it, and I, I, it's, it's really quite beautiful. In the next year or two, there was a deep feeling of kindness and family community in New York City. The heartfelt feelings and support poured in from around the country and the world. The intensity of that feeling has faded a bit over the years, but I feel there is a lasting change that is present as we remember 9-11. It's the kind of love that opens when we're willing to be present for what is true when we don't shrink from the truth. So this quality of equanimity is unfailing presence. And it's unfailing presence in the midst of the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows, as the Taoists call this life. And that's what we've been developing. Every time you sat here and you were willing to be with the unpleasant mind states, 
to just know them for what they are, how they are in the body, the heart, and the mind, without aversion, without reactivity. Every time you were with the joyful mind states, without grasping, without wishing it would stay forever, without needing it to return. You've been developing this quality of equanimity. And this quality of equanimity is not only a Brahma-vihara in the teachings, it's ubiquitous in the teachings, it's um, the seventh factor of the seven factors of enlightenment. And it's the tenth parami, the perfections of a Buddha, or the qualities that of a of a of the mind of a Buddha. It's the tenth quality of the ten paramis. So it's a culminating quality in our practice and in our lives. So many of you know the story of the Buddha's life. He was born into a privileged family. Some say he was a prince, some say he was a son of a headman. And he was protected by his father after a soothsayer said that he would, could either be a great political leader, a king, or he would be a great religious leader. And his father decided to protect him and so that he would become a great political leader. We saw how well that strategy worked. <laughs> he lived in places, in palaces of luxury. And he was, you know, he had everything that he wanted. And said that he went to, he had a place for the summer and a place for the winter, etc. And when he finally, he left the palace because he wanted to know what was outside the gates, he encountered uh, three, uh, four, what are called now heavenly messengers. He encountered someone who was old, who was bent over. He had never seen an old person before. He encountered someone who was ill, and he saw a corpse lying in the street. But he also saw someone meditating who was luminous. And he, when his companion, who had helped him to uh, tour the streets, told him that he would be subject to these conditions, to these conditions of sickness, old age sickness and death. He decided he wanted to get the answer to the um, question of human suffering. And so he explored asceticism with different teachers and he, he went, he was buffeted by, he, he, he investigated all kinds of different extremes. He looked at 
the extreme of having lived in the palace with everything that he could possibly want and then went to asceticism. And then his search eventually landed him in the middle path. That calling sati or mindfulness, that memory of when he was a young boy, I think Christina talked about it, and remembered a time when he was sitting under the tree and watching his father plowing the fields and the peace that had come to him. And each time we come into retreat, we follow that same path. We follow the same path the Buddha took, the journey to liberation or to awakening. And we traverse the same path between extremes in order to find our own middle way. And every time we come to retreat, what we explore is what will lead to our happiness and our liberation. And this quality of equanimity is the hallmark of that freedom and happiness. And whether we have an explicit uh, practice of equanimity or not, you are practicing it right now. Because the container of this retreat is designed to hold all of your experiences. All of the experiences that can arise, whether blissful or arduous, whether there is anxiety or sorrow or joy or calmness, you've been held by this retreat. All of your experience. And the reason I know that is because you're still here. You haven't left. And some of you have really had a hard time practicing. And yet, you've actually been living into this experience of being able to hold everything that has been coming up for you. One image that is used for equanimity is like riding the waves of an ocean. And there are joys and sorrows Uh, which are the waves of the ocean. But the ocean is so much more than the waves. Sometimes it's calm with some ripples. Sometimes they're tidal tsunamis. And you've experienced these. And yet, even those dramatic differences are not the ocean itself. And you've also experienced that. So the joys and the sorrows and the ways that we get pushed and pulled are not all of who we are. We've been learning to surf the waves. Another text, not in our tradition, that describes the understanding of equanimity is Ecclesiastes from the uh, Old Testament, where it says, to everything there is a season and a time to every purpose under the heavens, a time to be born 
and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up that which is planted, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. And it goes on. The great rhythms and cycles of our life and of nature. And in equanimity, we recognize this. There's a deep recognition that no life is just 10,000 joys. No life is just 10,000 sorrows. Sometimes it may feel as if it's just 10,000 sorrows. But we recognize these cycles of life. And of course, I said on Tuesday night about the ups and downs and the twists and turns of life that are described in the Dharma as the eight worldly winds. And so what we've discovered is this wisdom of heart that has a capacity to rest in these seasons of gain and loss and joy and sorrow and pleasure and pain and praise and blame. And it's hard. Nobody likes to be blamed. We all love to be praised. And it's pretty hard to not just want cycles of uh, pleasure and gain and to not fear the cycles of loss and pain. And yet we can rest in the midst of all of those changes. And that's what you've been doing. That is the capacity that you have been building. And we may not always have it. There are times, of course, when we fall off. But we know it in ourselves. We know that place of poise. We know that place of dignity. We know that place of rest. And it shouldn't be confused with its near enemy, indifference. There's a word that's grown up now in our uh, vocabulary that absolutely, perfectly, it's in the Urban Dictionary. You may, some of you may know it. Those of you who are young will know the Urban Dictionary. <laughs> Us old fogies don't know it so well. But it's an urban dictionary that really online that you know has all of these new terms that people use in different. There may be old terms used in different ways, in new ways. And the term that is used for indifference, that really kind of sums up indifference, is whatever. <laughs> right? It doesn't matter what happens. You know, I'll get a different wife or a different house or a different job or a different husband. It all changes anyway. Who cares? That's indifference. And there's, um, I have it here, there's in the Urban Dictionary. I'm going to read this to you because it's really quite fun. Some of the definitions of whatever are, I don't care. Nothing you say or do could make you matter to me. 
I'm actually upset that you're stealing my air. <laughs> and you can feel how uh, different that is from equanimity. I, so it's kind of a nice, I think it's a more graphic way of understanding the near enemy than indifference. There's a wonderful cartoon, Sylvia, and the title is Great Dreams of Modern Science. And she's sitting there reading about new genetic discoveries in the first panel. And in the second panel, she's sitting in bed and her form has changed. She looks younger and more beautiful and she says, I dreamed that after I ate some genetically altered tomatoes, their traits were transmitted to me. I stayed young and firm forever. <laughs> and in addition, I was resistant to budworm. <laughs> so, you know, we think that if we get some genetically altered traits somehow, all these vicissitudes of life, these worldly winds won't affect us and change us, but they will. They always do. We're a new person every day, every experience. And equanimity understands the change of ourselves, of our body and our breath, that our children grow up, we will die, people we love will die, they'll age and die, the seasons revolve. And it allows us to discover and respect this capacity of heart and being. An opening in the midst of it all. And it has with it a fearlessness and a deep compassion and a centeredness that allows us to see all of life. This is from Zen master Suzuki Roshi. You don't really know what it means to sit in meditation until there is some great difficulty in your life. Not until something happens like the grave illness of someone you love. And there you are, tearing your hair out and pacing back and forth in the corridor of the hospital and there's nothing you can do. And finally, you take your seat in the midst of your fears and your sorrows and your thoughts and your worries and you just sit in the middle of it all. And that's the moment that you begin to understand the power of your practice. But here's the thing. We can't wait until then to practice. Because the mind is incapable of being trained under those kinds of heavy um, circumstances that's pulling our attention and our energy away. So that's why this, this experience, this opportunity of coming into a retreat where everything is taken care of, where there's no extreme other than heat that we have to cope with, that's when the mind is capable of being trained. So we're not fighting against 
and we're not struggling. That comes from reactivity, which is the far enemy of equanimity. But we're in stability and ease and the trust in the midst of all things. And we learn it when we sit on our cushions and we sit and various things arise that are pleasant and unpleasant, difficult or or not difficult. And you sit there and your body hurts and you sit with the pain in the knee and the pain in the back and the pain in the shoulders and you include it in your awareness and you include it in your loving kindness. And you sit and then rapture and pleasant sensations come. Hallelujah. And you include that joy in your meditation. And you sit and there's worry and fear and anxiety and expectation and then beautiful and divine thoughts. And you sit in the center of those. And you just stay there in the midst of this. You've been doing this all week. So the balance that we've been practicing and our presence in the the, uh, face of pain and whatever uh, we've been facing, grief or loss or unfulfilled longing or desire or hope or love or imaginings. And we sit and acknowledge with mindfulness what is here. And to keep, to, to sit and develop this kind of equanimity keeps all of those forces to move through us and gradually to unknot, to be released, to untangle. And what's wonderful about that is that there's nothing we're doing to do that. What the only thing we're doing is we're creating the space for this untangling, unknotting to happen. We've not been sitting there un- disentangling it by our will or by force, but we've been creating the space to allow it to happen because there's a cleansing and an opening and a purification that wants to happen in our being. And we rest in a timeless aspect of being. You and I spoke eloquently last night about the vastness of the world in which we live and the great balance that it holds (coughs) and how it holds us with gravity. This is from The Universe as a Green Dragon by Brian Schwimmer. He says, the oxygen content of our atmosphere is near 21%. This was created more than a billion years ago by some of the earlier forms of life. If the concentration of oxygen were increased by only a few percentage points, the conditions would become such that a single lightning strike could turn an entire forest, a whole continent, into flame. On the other hand, if the concentration of oxygen were lowered significantly from its present level, we would not have the energy supply, the chemical potential energy necessary for advanced forms of life. Somehow, this earth has created an atmosphere and kept it balanced for more than a billion years at just 21%. 
provided as much chemical potential as possible for the creation of the animal kingdom while avoiding a situation of terrestrial catastrophe in the spontaneous outburst of fires. Life has an order to it. It has a much greater order than we notice when we're driving around and doing our shopping. Right? And to think that we have any idea of what is a curse and what is a blessing is absurd. So what we have been doing is understanding how it can be that we can live in this vast universe with all of its joys and all of its sorrows without reactivity. This too, this too, this too. And if we think of the great civilizations of Egypt and Babylonia and Greece and Rome and China and the Ottoman Empire and the Khmer Empire and uh, the great Persian Empire and more recently the British Empire and the Russian Empire. (laughs) Hmm? Canadian! Canadian! So we get some uh, perspective, some sense of proportion. And from this kind of vision, everything balances out in the end. And we really begin to understand the, uh, the, law, the, the lawful unfolding of how it is. And of course you can do a practice of equanimity as a meditation practice where you sit and visualize the change of seasons, the rise and falls of empires, the birth and death of beings, where you see that all beings who receive life have a certain karmic history. And depending on what we do, the kind of life we lead, that we can create more sorrow or more freedom. And you can't change another person's karma. You can care for them, you can teach them, you can assist them in any way you can, but in the end it is they who create their own happiness or their own suffering, just as we have been seeing in our own practice how we do that ourselves. And so in equanimity, there's also a very deep compassion. We see all of the changing conditions of the world, and we really don't know. We can sit in the midst of not knowing. We don't know what any other person needs, and we don't know what is supposed to happen.
so as we go into our lives, back into the usual diurnal way of living our lives, can we really understand what has happened here for us and how we can take equanimity. We can go back into the world. There's a lovely set of um, pictures in Zen called the Ten Ox Herding Pictures where it shows the journey of the spiritual um, search. And in the end, so there are ten pictures of this person uh, searching for the ox as the the ox is the um, metaphor for the spiritual search. And in the end, it goes back into the marketplace. And so we're going back into the marketplace. But we take this equanimity with us. We take this ability that we've cultivated to sit in all of the extremes. And just like the Buddha, who was, not, who was not devoid of problems after his enlightenment, we go back with a renewed understanding of how it is to live in this, with this quality of equanimity in our hearts. You know, the Buddha's, he had backache and migraines and his cousin tried to kill him, and his clan was wiped out, and his mother died in childbirth. His life was not a bed of roses, even though his father tried to protect him. So we are not unlike that. We can actually use this practice of mindfulness and equanimity continue the development of life as um, beings of peace. And when we are beings of peace in the world, it's not just about our personal freedom. But we know that we affect the world because we are not separate from it. So our quality of equanimity will influence all of those around us and will ripple out into the whole world. That's what we, will, we can and will contribute. The Buddha said he would not teach that which is not possible. He taught that freedom is possible. And he didn't say it was possible for you and you, but not for you. He just said freedom is possible. So when we are at peace, in spite of the way things are, when we are in our being peaceful, everything becomes peaceful around us. And it's a tremendous gift. And it's something that the world needs really badly. And all the people in our life and all the things it ripples out to will be affected by it. Your sense of being centered and open. Your place of peace.
So let's sit for a moment before we end. And as you sit, just find that place of peace and balance in yourself. You know what the difficult things are in your life now, the things you long for, the things that are beautiful, blessings in the world around you. See if you can sense the peace of the Buddha within you in the midst of all of these. Opening the heart with compassion and with peacefulness. Being at rest. Breathing in. Breathing out. Just being here. Resting in the moment. And you can take this equanimity home, practice it, embody it. It may not be perfect, but as you rest in your being, it will develop and grow. And that is my wish for you. Thank you so much for your practice and for your attention. Time for walking. Please feel free to leave. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.